All right, y'all can be seated, kids. Head on back to the back. All right, book of 1 Kings is where we're going to be today. The book of 1 Kings. Kicking off a brand new series. And we have got 16 chapters to cover in one Sunday. So we'll see how that goes. 1 Kings. So... I'll explain a little bit how this is going to work and what we're going to talk about as we, as we go through and as we get started, but I'm excited about this series. I've been thinking about uh, talking about some of these things for quite a while and covering some of these passages for a while, and so I'm excited that God has got us here. On January 28, 1986, NASA was uh, set to launch one of the most highly publicized missions to space that it had, it had put together since the days of... Uh, the early days of Apollo. They'd been lagging in public support. They'd been lagging in public enthusiasm for the space program. Uh, and they had initiated several different initiatives to try and uh, draw some more publicity to, to, to continue to get funding and all the things that can go along with, uh, with just general public goodwill towards the space program. Uh, and they had initiated the Teachers in Space program to connect the space program to classrooms all across America, uh, where they would be sending a teacher to space that was not an astronaut, but a teacher to space who would be teaching students while she was aboard uh, the Challenger space shuttle. It was a massive publicity uh, effort, public relations effort. In fact, I don't know if you guys know this or not, but Big Bird was actually supposed to be on the space shuttle. Uh, but they couldn't fit the costume on there, and so Big Bird did not quite make it on the space shuttle. Um, for those of you that don't know what I'm talking about, what I'm talking about is what would become known as the, the Challenger disaster. Uh, now, I don't know how many of you guys were even alive whenever that happened. I realize that at this point, I'm dating myself just a, a little bit, but within 73 seconds of liftoff, NASA knew something was bad or wrong. The ship began to rattle, uh, and then uh, the, 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 the booster, the, the solid rocket booster that was there uh, began to kind of fall apart at its base, which would result in a massive explosion, killing all seven crew members on board while millions of kids uh, across America watched from their classrooms, me being uh, one of them, uh, and saw all of that happen uh, live. In the aftermath of this disaster, there was a rush to find out what happened and, frankly, a rush to find out who to blame. Uh, they, they, they started finding all kinds of different things and talking about a variety of things, but in their research they found the cause of the explosion was an, an O-ring at the base of one of the solid rocket boosters that was, failed to seal correctly for a variety of reasons, uh, and it caused a leak which uh, would cause the explosion. The cause was simple enough to identify. It was identified within hours uh, of what happened. But the, the, the other question is, how did this happen? Not just what caused it, but how was this allowed to happen? How did this happen? And that was a tougher question to answer. In the sub subsequent months that came after that, NASA did a no-holds-barred report of what went wrong. They uncovered every level of their organization. They went through every part of their organization. Things from launching at the wrong temperatures to using subpar equipment that couldn't handle those temperatures to marketing and PR teams and pressure that came from them to political pressures that came for them to, to launch when they did. 
Today, if you go to a business school, virtually every business school in America will use the Challenger disaster as uh, the case study for bad decision making based on groupthink. It is the, uh, the, the uh, case study that is put forward for how multiple t- decisions at multiple levels of an organization that, that all seem to be minor in their importance become something massive in their outcome. It is the test case all across uh, America. And because of this, NASA had redone everything in, in their organization about how they decide what to do. From marketing to engineering to mission control, all of those things played into it. And they all had these small decisions that in the moment seemed plausible, even wise, but in the bigger picture resulted in disaster. This morning... We're going to cover the first 16 chapters of the book of 1 Kings. And honestly, the entire, entirety of 1 Kings and 2 Kings uh, is, is, is a little bit of what, we, what, what, what was uncovered within the culture of NASA. It's, it's an effort to become something great so that seemingly small decisions were, were minimized and overlooked in order of this idea of becoming something greater. So the, the tale of what happened and what was found out about the Challenger disaster mirrors a lot of what happens in the book of First and Second Kings. And if you're skeptical about what I'm saying, if you just give me a little bit this morning and then maybe the next few weeks, I think you'll start to see how this plays out and how this happens. Because as we get into this book, what we are going to see is how a lot of little decisions led to some very, very dire results in the end. How a lot of smaller decisions became something so much greater. Now, as we get into this book, we need to note kind of a few things about where we are and what to expect out of this book. And so I want to set this up for you because a lot of this stuff in 1 Kings are stories that you may have heard. Stories that you may know a little bit if you've been in church at all. If you've been around church, you may know some of these. But this is also kind of that part of the Bible where a lot of people say, I don't know what's going on. There's all these weird names. There's Jeroboam and Rehoboam and all these other people. And I don't know who they're talking about. I don't understand what they're talking about. And, and I promise you, as we get into this, you're going to see how all of this kind of plays out. And all of this is, 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 uh, uh, is eminently relevant for us today. So where we're at in the story, uh, I want to back out just a little bit. So go back to where we started all the way last year. If you've been at Providence, we started in Ezra and Nehemiah this time last year, last January, we started Ezra and Nehemiah. And what we were picking up on whenever we were in Ezra and Nehemiah, if you remember, was Ezra and Nehemiah leading a band of people out of exile in order to go and rebuild the wall of Jerusalem, right? So that's where we're at. Well, this book is kind of the prequel that answers the question, well, how did they get there? How did they get to that place where they were in exile, where Ezra and Nehemiah needed to rebuild the wall and needed to bring this, back of, this, this group of, uh, of people back to Jerusalem? Well, this is going to answer this question. How did they get in that situation in the first place? How did they get into that, uh, that predicament in the first place? It sets it all up. So as we start... Uh, the book of 1 Kings, what we see is uh, that Israel is doing pretty good. 
the great King David is in charge. He's, he's ruling from his throne. He's had his problems, especially some uh, pretty significant family problems. But for the most part, where we pick up at the very beginning of 1 Kings, and if you've got your Bible, it'll be super, super helpful for you to be able to flip, flip around some stuff because we'll have some stuff up on the screen. But we'll be talking in kind of big chunks here, and it's helpful for you to look around. So if you see in the book of 1 Kings, Israel's doing pretty well. Uh, things are going pretty well. The, the tribes have united under. David. It's a unified kingdom. The nation is prospering. God has shown David his favor. He's established a covenant with him. Back in uh, 2 Samuel, he, he established a covenant with him saying that he would always have a descendant on the throne. It's a, it's a good time for Israel. Things are progressing. Things are growing. And this is where uh, 1 Kings picks up. And actually, we're, I, we'll call it the book of Kings because really 1 and 2 Kings was one book. Uh, and then it was split apart because of uh, some of its length and, and scrolls and some of that kind of stuff. But it was originally one book written as one book, the Book of Kings. Uh, and, and I want you to think, if you were writing a history about, uh, and, and you called it the Book of Kings, what would you think the Book of Kings would talk about? Or at least what would you want it to talk about? Uh, I, I'm going to assume you know nothing about this book. Now, I know some of you probably know some of it. Some of you probably know it really well. But let's just assume you know nothing about this book. What should the book of Kings be about? Well, with a name like that and a setup like that one that I just gave you, you would think it would be about this magnificent nation. And it would be about these kings that led this magnificent nation, that, that, led these, uh, that it was led by these majestic kings that would, uh, would, would be kind of these, uh, it, it, would, it would shape up as kind of the greatest hits, right? It would shape up as, here's the best of the best of what Israel did. As they ascended to, to worldwide power, as these kings led them to this place of prominence, here's the high points of Israel's story and the kings that brought them to these high points. That is not the book of Kings. Not even close. Instead, it almost reads the exact opposite. It almost reads as the low points and how they fell apart. It reads a bit like the report that came out after the Challenger disaster. How did this happen? And the answer of how did this happen is you had about a million little decisions that all played into a few really big decisions that ultimately decided the fate of a nation. And each of these decisions in the moment probably made sense to the person that made it. Even if some of the warnings should have been heeded, they moved ahead and they went forward. And at the end of this book, at the end of 2 Kings, you have a kingdom that is destroyed, a people that are taken away as slaves, and everyone looking around wondering what in the world happened to us. So here's what I want to do with that joyful picture of what we've got ahead of us over the next few weeks and the next few months. I want to zoom back and I want to uh, cover the, the first a uh, couple of important passages in the first 16 chapters of this book that are kind of the summary highlights, the, the, the things I want to draw your attention to that will, will kind of give us a peek into what was going on at the time. <clears throat> now, before I do that, I want to answer the question, why aren't we just going to go through this book like we go through other books? Why aren't we just going to go through this book verse by verse uh, and, cover, and, and cover every little thing that happens? Well, there's a few different reasons uh, for that. Uh, but mainly because I want to make sure that we tell the story well of what is happening. 
And when you get into these books, as fascinating as the history is and as important as a lot of these individual stories are, as you start digging into some of these individual stories, you can kind of lose the big picture. You can miss the forest for the trees in this for sure. And so I want to be able to tell this story in big chunks because as we do that, I think we can follow along just a little bit better. And when we get to the end of 1 Kings and the beginning of 2 Kings, uh, we're going we're gonna to slow down a lot because the author of the book of Kings slows down a lot. He goes from big picture about all these different kings to focusing in on two guys, Elijah and Elisha, guys you might, might have heard of before. He focuses in on those two guys. So we'll slow down for those two guys, but we're going to look at the overview here today for these first 16 chapters. So we start this book with Solomon ascending to the throne as king. That's what happens in the first couple of chapters of uh, the book of Kings. There's some family drama. There's an attempted coup. There's, there's some things that kind of happen there. Uh, but Bathsheba comes up with a plan so that her son Solomon will be safe and secure on the throne. She enacts this. All goes as planned. Solomon becomes king. He ascends to the throne. And he takes the throne. And immediately things go very well for Solomon. Look with me in 1 Kings chapter 2, verse 1. When, when David's time to die drew near, he commanded Solomon, his son, saying, I am about to go the way of all the earth. Be strong and show yourself a man and keep the charge of the Lord your, and keep the charge of the Lord your God, walking in his ways and keeping his statutes, his commandments, his rules and his testimonies, as it is written in the law of Moses, that you may prosper in all that you do and wherever you turn, that the Lord may establish his word that he spoke concerning me, saying, if your sons pay close attention to their way to walk before me in faithfulness with all their heart and with all their soul, you shall not lack a man on the throne of Israel. So David lays out for Solomon as he takes over the role of king, becomes King Solomon. David lays out what needs to happen. Now, when David does this, he misquotes the covenant that God has made with him from 2 Samuel chapter 7. But he's pretty close. He gets the general gist of things. He misquotes it a little bit, but mainly he says this. And he says, he tells Solomon of this covenant and this assurance that God would be with him if he, if he pays attention to the way he walks with God. If he just continues to follow after God all will be well. So he, he exhorts his son. He says, follow this path. This is the promise that has been given to me. I now pass this promise on down to you, and it will continue in our generation if you just continue to walk well. So that's chapter 2. Chapter 3, you have Solomon asking for wisdom, the, the great request where he says, uh, God, make me, he, God says, I'll give you anything. And he says, I want wisdom. God grants this prayer, and Solomon becomes renowned the world over for his wisdom and guidance. This is evidence that Solomon is headed in a good direction. He's doing well so far. It talks a little bit about his growing wealth and his growing influence. And then you get to chapter 5 and we see this long stretch of the story about Solomon building the temple, the one that David wanted to build. And God said, no, you're not going to build this for me. I'm going to have somebody else do it. Well, it's his son, Solomon. Solomon's temple is built and there's these detailed instructions that, that very much remind us of the, the book of Exodus where the instructions are given for the tabernacle. It's all laid out there. Everything is going good. He furnishes the, the temple. He puts the ark in the temple, the ark of the covenant in the temple where it belongs. So it's just check, 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 just knocking stuff off. All is good. All is good. All is good. All starts well for Solomon until they're not. 
You get to chapter 10, and Solomon meets with the queen of Sheba. And he vows her with, or he wows her with, 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 with his wisdom and with his wealth. He, he literally takes her breath away with, her, with, with all of his, his wisdom. She brings an offering, pays tribute to Solomon in a, uh, in a scene that uh, she, she, she wants to make sure that she understands uh, all these different things and or that, that she is uh, on board with Solomon and that she appreciates and, and respects him for all the great things that he has done and for how wise he is. Solomon returns the favor and offers her essentially anything uh, before she uh, leaves as a gift. The whole story is meant to show how wonderful Solomon is, how rich Solomon is, and how, how, how prominent Israel is becoming. And then you look in chapter 11, and this is where things start to go sideways. Not like start to go sideways. This is when things fall apart completely. First Kings chapter 11, verse 1. Now King Solomon loved many foreign women, along with the daughter of Pharaoh, Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, and the Hittite women, from the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the people of Israel, you shall not enter into marriage with them, neither shall they with you, for surely they will turn your heart after, after their gods. Solomon clung to these in love. So the ones that God says, don't, don't marry those women because they will have you worshiping other gods, that's the ones that Solomon went after. He had 700 wives who were princesses and 300 concubines, and his wives turned away his heart, did exactly what God warned would happen. For when Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods, and his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God, as was the heart of David his father. For Solomon went after Ashtoreth and goddess of the Sidonians and after Milcom and the abomination of the Ammonites. So Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and did not wholly follow the Lord as David his father had done. And then Solomon built a high place for Chemosh, the abomination of Moab, and for Moloch, the abomination of the Ammonites, and on the mountains of east of Jerusalem. And so he did for all his foreign wives who made offerings and sacrificed to their gods. So chapter 11, we find Solomon's weak spot. Wise man or not, he can't shake the ladies. That is where he falls. He marries women from virtually every geopolitical background that there is, even the daughter of Pharaoh. Can you just imagine that conversation with Moses if you were to say, hey, this is what's going to happen in just a, just a few years. Not, it's, it's a little ways down the road, but here's what's going to happen. And the king of Israel is going to marry the daughter of Pharaoh. It's stunning to see how quickly it reads in the text. I mean, it's a paragraph in length. And you see Solomon go from this revered, awed man for his wisdom to everything falling apart. I mean, it happens so quickly in the text. But here's the thing. You don't marry 700 women in one night, not even Solomon. He's like varsity level with, with his sin, but even he doesn't marry 700 women in one night. And you don't do it because they all love you or because you love all of them. These are politically motivated marriages for the most part. Now, it does say that he loved his wives. He, he went after them, but, but these were also politically motivated. So they brought peace and friendship uh, to, to, to the, the, the neighboring, uh, the neighboring uh, tribes, the neighboring area, brought all that to them. And Solomon loved it all. He loved it all. One by one, decision by decision, year by year, the wives added up, and they kept adding up. 
Political wisdom would have told Solomon, this makes a lot of sense. Do this. His advisors were almost certainly backing him because it would be good for the nation. It's a safeguard against attack. But Solomon knew better. David had warned him. These women didn't just have his eye. They had his heart. It starts with the marriage. And then the next thing you know, he's not even worried about the temple that that he has his his name attached to. The temple built for Yahweh because he's building all these other little temples all throughout the kingdom. Every wife that had a God, they, they got their own little place to worship. They got their own little temple to worship in. And they were all over the place. Provided for the entire nation to go and worship at those places. One by one, Solomon gives away his heart to each of those wives. And then to each of those wives' gods. I'd be willing to bet that Solomon convinced himself that every one of these marriages was wise. After all, there's much to be gained in these type of marriages. But we know, and so did he, that this marriage did not honor God. And surely when the worship of other gods becomes prevalent, Solomon knows his heart is gone too far. A flood of small decisions ends with this picture of Solomon, no longer looking like the son of David, and instead looking much more like Pharaoh, worshiping all these other gods. The king of Israel looks less like King David and more like Pharaoh. That's how that segment looks, that's how that segment ends. 1 through 11, the reign of Solomon. It starts well, it ends terribly. And then in 12 through 16, we're going to show, see a picture of what happens when chaos rules a kingdom. So we have the reign of Solomon, and then what's going to happen in 12 through 16 is going to be the division of the nation of Israel. This is a, a, a wild thing whenever you consider the way that, that, that God chose his people and the way that God loved his people and the way God drew his people out of the book of, uh, out of, in the book of Exodus, how he drew them out of slavery, how he, he, he brought them to the promised land, to this land flowing with milk and honey, and how he set up uh, David in place of Saul. All this was going so well. And in the span, span of Solomon's rule, you go from great to terrible, and then you have this guy named Rehoboam, take over. And he makes some critical mistakes right out of the gate. He seeks to rule with an iron fist and he begins to institute all these harsh conditions on the people. The people rebel and they refuse to follow Rehoboam. And and what you get then is essentially a civil war. If not a civil war, at least a civil uh, unrest and civil division. The kingdom of Israel splits into two different kingdoms at this point. You have Israel... The north kingdom, capital is Samaria, and the ten, and ten tribes of Israel go with this group. So you have the northern kingdom, and then you have the southern kingdom that is called Judah. And this is one of those things, if you don't know your Old Testament history well, you have no idea that this happens, and you get super confused for the rest of the Old Testament. Because you're like, I don't understand, who are we talking about, Israel or Judah? Well, this is, this is the same people, but they're now split. You have the tribe of Judah, the southern kingdom, and, uh, that's got Jerusalem as the capital, and you have Israel, the northern kingdom, that has everybody else. 
So all this happens in the midst of, uh, right on the heels of Solomon's reign with Rehoboam at the, <clears throat> with Rehoboam at the helm. And then you have the story about Rehoboam and Jeroboam. He becomes the king of the northern kingdom. And so you have these two guys. And then what's going to follow for the rest of this book is we're going to look at, uh, the, the book is going to trace each of the kings in the northern and the southern kingdom. And what we're going to see is that the northern kingdom, they strike out. They're 0 for 20. The southern kingdom, they have a few good kings, but most of them are not great either. We'll talk about that more a little bit uh, next week whenever we talk about the, the dynamic between the kings and the prophets. We'll, we'll get there. We'll, we'll cover that just a little bit. But the kingdom has split. The rulers are corrupt. The influence that they had growing with Solomon is gone. And they've set up these mini temples all throughout to worship all these other gods. And it all started at the top with Solomon, but it's infiltrated all the people of, of Israel. That's, what, that's what's coming. We're going to keep talking about all of that. So there's a lot more I would like to talk about, but this week, we simply need to stop here and acknowledge what happens. Right? We're halfway through the report and, and answering the question, how did Israel fall so far? How did it get so bad for Israel? When we get to Elijah and Elisha, we'll kind of look at that in detail. But we've seen enough to see that a few small decisions are all that are needed to start a trajectory that would ultimately become an unavoidable collision course with disaster. Now, your, your question is like, all right, that's a great history lesson about Israel. But now, how does this apply to me? How do I apply what you're talking about? Like, I, I get it. We're talking about some of this stuff. It's in the Bible. We need to talk about it. But what am I supposed to make out of this? Listen, it's human nature to worry and analyze over the big decisions in life. We pray for weeks and months about new jobs and new homes and big moves, who we're going to marry, if we're going to marry, what we're going to spend money on, we analyze these big decisions and we look at them from every way that we can. We pray about them. We spend time praying about them. And you know what I'm talking about. The ones that we ask other people to pray for us as we're making those decisions. right? That is human nature to focus in on those things. And that is good and right that we do those things. And while these things get all the attention, and they should, the older I get, I've found something else at play in, in my life. The big decisions set the stage, but it's the small decisions that define a life. It's the big decisions that, that kind of determine the, the framework for the canvas, that set the boundaries. But it's the little decisions that color in the painting. Here's, here's what I mean. Your job will oftentimes determine where you live. Not always, but generally, like, let's just take the, this principle here. It'll, it'll determine often the city you live in, the type of house you have. Uh, it, it's a worthy prayer to ask for decision, or to ask that God would help you uh, in deciding what your job will be, what, your, what it will be. Because once that is set, you have the parameters set for life in general, Right? Where you live, the type of house you have, all that kind of stuff. A home, a community, all of that is kind of set by that. But it's what you do on a day-in, day-out basis that will determine the feel and the memories of that home. So the big decisions set the framework. But what you carry with you in your heart, what you carry with you in your mind, that will be determined 
by the little things that you do during that time? Is that home a happy one where memories are made and memories that, that, that we cherish and that we want to hold on to and that we want to think about? Or is that, a, is that a place where memories are created that we want to run from, that we want to shun, that we want to hide? Is that home a, a safe place where, where, where people can fail and get back up and try again? Is that home a tense one where everyone is walking around on eggshells waiting for things to fall apart? Is it a loving one where a husband and a wife are pursuing one, one another for, for each other's best interests? Or is it a harsh one where everyone is beat down by the cutting words that are being thrown around? You see, the framework is established by the big decisions, but the life is established by the little ones. And this is what happened here with Israel, and it's what happens with us. You see, we pray about the big decisions. We fret about them. We ask others to pray about them. But the little ones, we don't pray about those. We don't hardly even think about those. We don't ask others to pray about those either. We don't even talk about them. We don't think about them. They're so small. They're so seemingly meaningless almost taken for granted that they pass right by in front of us without any consideration. And it's those decisions that make a life. I'm not old yet, but I'm getting there. I feel it. I'm getting close. With one in high school and one in middle school and being married for 21 years, I'm starting to see the fruit of decisions that I have made. Decisions I didn't even know I was making. Because it's just life that's happening. But they are decisions. I'm starting to see the fruit of those decisions. And some of that fruit is sweet. And some of it is very bitter. And some of it is very hard. I'd give anything to go back and be able to tell my younger self. And be able to say to my younger self. Hey, take this thing that you don't even realize is happening. Take it a little bit more seriously. I know you think it's the right thing to do or maybe the natural thing to do or the, the logical thing to do, but, but think about this a little bit. You don't want to go here like you think you do. You don't want this to go the way you think it does. You'll regret what you're going to become if you keep going in this way. I wish I could tell myself that. This is how it happened to Solomon. The man granted the most wisdom. The man who built Solomon's temple. The man who was set to inherit the mantle of his father, King David. But one decision made the next decision a little bit easier. And that's the way a life works. Every moment we live makes the next moment in that same direction just a little bit easier. It's easier to work out when you've worked out for 45 straight days. It's not that hard to get to 46 it's easier to eat right when you ate right yesterday. It's easier to choose to be po a positive person over a cynical person when you were a positive person yesterday. Yesterday's decision makes today's decisions easier. But the converse is true too. One cutting word towards your spouse today makes it that much easier to take it to the next level tomorrow. One outburst of anger towards your kids today quickly becomes a pattern where they just say, well, I guess that's just who dad is. You're always one bad decision away from a bad habit. Always. And godliness does not happen by accident. You will not accidentally become godly. 
The only way you grow in godliness is through each and every decision filtered through his person, his commands, and his agenda every day. A life left to the ebbs and flows of the days, the weeks, the months, and the years will be a life that drifts with the pressures of the moment. It is important for us to remember that. I've got a few takeaways for you this morning. I've got two takeaways for you this morning, and here's the first one. Life happens in moments that you don't even recognize are moments. Those moments can either pass you right by or or create a life before you even know it. Or they can serve you in your godliness. But usually not both. They can either pass by without you realizing it or they can serve you. But usually not both. A life in pursuit of God is almost certainly an examined life. Now, here's the second takeaway, and this is important. If we stop here, then I've done my job as a, as, a, as a speaker up here to try and challenge you to be better people, to try and challenge you to live better lives. I've done my job to put it forward to you to say, live the examined life. Don't, don't miss out on these things that, that when you look back, you'll say, I wish I was more intentional about those things. It's the same thing that that David did with Solomon at the very beginning of Solomon's reign. If we stop here, I've done that part of my job. And to be clear, this is good advice I'm giving you. You may not take it, but it's good advice. And you should listen to it. Live long enough and you'll know that this is true. But listen, this advice that I've given you so far is woefully insufficient on many levels. Do you know who said the unexamined life is not worth living? Does anybody know that? Anybody want to throw it out? Anybody? No philosophers in here? All right. It's Socrates. Socrates is the one that said that. So if I stop here with that essential thing, the unexamined life is not worth living, I've essentially given you some Greek philosophy. I've slapped some Bible on it. I've called it Christian. But that's essentially what I've done, given you good advice but not gospel advice. So think about this. If every little decision has the chance to run us so far off course that we end up like the space shuttle, a complete disaster, I don't know about you, but that's, that sounds like a lot of pressure. Do you feel the weight of that as I say that this morning? Do you feel the weight of me as I'm saying every decision has a chance to lead to more bad decisions? Do you feel the pressure that comes along with that to to analyze every single small little thing that you go through? And again, this is good advice I'm giving you. I'm not knocking the advice I'm giving you. It's good advice. But to me, that sounds like a yoke that is unbearable. It sounds like a yoke that will crush me. If every life, if every decision is life or death, then the weight of that will crush us within days, if not hours. It is a soul-crushing weight. But the gospel teaches us that we have something that frees us from that crushing burden. Not only that, it keeps us from doing just like Solomon, where we mostly get it right only to eventually get it wrong. Some of y'all need to listen to me very closely here because you are living the Christian life under these exact conditions. 
under this crushing burden. You are living the life and you are absolutely exhausted trying to get it right every single time. But I promise you there's some very good news here. Remember when I said that David gave Solomon instruction about being faithful to God and that David mostly said it right but kind of misquoted what God said in his covenant? You remember when I said that? That's an important place where David gets, where David gets it wrong. So let's look again at what David told Solomon, and then I want you to see what God told David. So 1 Kings chapter 2, verse 1. When David's time to die drew near, he commanded Solomon his son, saying, I'm about to go the way of all the earth. Be strong, show yourself a man, and keep the charge of the Lord your God, walking in his ways and keeping his statutes, his commandments, his rules, his testimonies, as it is written in the law of Moses, that you may prosper in all that you do and wherever you turn, that the Lord may establish his words that he spoke to me concerning this. And now pay attention to what David says. If your sons pay close attention to their way to walk before me in faithfulness with all their heart, with all their soul, you shall not lack a man on the throne of Israel. That is how David quotes it. Now I want you to see what God actually told David. 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 12. I want you to compare these two statements because the difference in these two statements is life. When your days are fulfilled, this is God speaking to David, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men, but my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words and in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. Do you see the difference in those two statements? David tells Solomon, if you live right, you will be blessed by God and he will not abandon you. But what God told David was, I will never abandon you. I will never leave you. God does not make his faithfulness to his covenant with David conditional upon the faithfulness of David's sons. God says he is faithful regardless of the actions of David's line. There may be punishments, and we'll see, there definitely are. But God will remain faithful. This is what Paul uh, refers to, or this is the, the idea that Paul has in 2 Timothy when he gives us a, 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 a saying to kind of write on our hearts and to hold on to. He says, this saying is trustworthy. For if we have died with him, we also live with him. If we endure, we also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. There is so much that I want to say here. There's so much that I want to take out of this. And I do not have time, but I'll summarize as best I can. Small choices can have massive implications. Don't miss that this morning. The nation of Israel fell apart because of a series of small choices. And godliness does not happen by accident. You can only get there by very deliberately taking up your cross every single day and dying to yourself. There is no other way. 
But the beauty of the gospel is that we are never simply the sum of our decisions. At any point, we can stop this cascade of decisions, repent before God, and he is faithful and just to forgive them. And why is he faithful? Because he promised he would be. And for no other reason than that. Because he promised his grace would be there for us. Friends, the examined life is a powerful thing. It is a necessary thing. Socrates isn't wrong. But far greater than the examined life is the redeemed and forgiven one. And that is the hope that we have in the gospel. It's never too late. Maybe you have... Maybe you've let your life go too long. You haven't examined it the way that you should. Maybe your family isn't what you want it to be. Maybe your marriage isn't what it should be. Maybe you're not what you want to be. And that's okay. Because Jesus is here for people just like that. Just like me. Just like you. So if when you take the time to examine your life, you find yourself lacking, that you come up short, and any honest appraisal of our lives will find us there. So when that happens and you find yourself wanting and coming up short, then you're in good company with the rest of us. And that's exactly why Jesus came. And that's exactly why the gracious gift of forgiveness and redemption that we have. Friend, do not be exhausted or crushed under the burden that every decision could ruin your life. Be aware of your decisions. Submit those to God. By all means, do this. But rejoice in a God that is faithful to us even when we have been unfaithful to Him. Faithful to us on account of His goodness, His mercy, and his faithfulness. Come to him. This offer is there for anyone that will come to him. And if you will find yourself in Christ, this is yours to take hold of. Freed from the crushing burden of perfection. Freed from the crushing burden of every decision wrecking your life. Free to pursue God on the basis of that redemption. You see, Solomon didn't have that category. He needed to be perfect, and when he wasn't perfect, it fell apart. But at any time, he could have come back. This is the story of the rest of the book of Kings. The prophet's plea to come back. The prophet's plea to say, come back and, and listen to what God has to say. And the failure of a nation to do so, for the most part. This morning, don't make that mistake. Come to Christ. Know Him. Receive Him. Be freed from that burden. And know the grace and the mercy that we've been given. Will you pray with me? Father, this morning, we confess that we do not examine our lives well enough. That even as Peter taught us that we should examine ourselves and that we should, we should, we should uh, consider our own salvation, as John told us, that we should examine ourselves and see if we are, uh, if we are in the faith. As, as we have been taught, we do not examine ourselves well. 
we excuse away bad decisions. We completely miss the things that really shape our lives. We submit in some areas and other areas we don't even consider bringing before you. We do not examine our lives as we should. But Father, it is also our heart's cry that as we do examine our lives and we find ourselves coming up well short of the standard you have given us, that you are gracious to forgive. That redemption is not only possible, it is there for those who would come to you. And so, Father, help us to do that. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.